everyone, and welcome back to Operation History. Where history is not always how you remember it. All four hosts are in the house tonight. I'm Lauren, and we have Maria. Hello. Derek. Hello. And David. Hi, everyone. How's it going today? It's everyone's favorite spooky time of the year, and our show is here to put a unique historical spin on that theme. Our show is full of all kinds of treats today as we explore spooky historical folklore of New England. Derek brings to the table tales of werewolves of Woonsocket. David has legends that tell of a Loch Ness monster in Maine. While the boys have conjured up tales of monsters and mayhem, Aaron, that's me, and Maria's spooky legends take on a more realistic or historical approach. Lauren brings to life the story of Lizzie Borden from the nursery rhyme, while Maria tells of the last vampire, Mercy Brown, from Exeter, Rhode Island. You better believe I'm talking in third person. You better believe it. Alright. Are we ready to put some uh, tricks in our treat? Totally. Alright. I see what you did there, and I love it. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Are you ready to share with us, Maria? I'm ready. Take it away. All right. So, everybody, my story slash legend today is all about Mercy Brown. From those who are from Rhode Island or the surrounding area, Mercy Brown down in Exeter is kind of a folklore that tends to gain a little more popularity around this time of year. She was a real person. She lived in Exeter, Rhode Island, or in 1892, late 1880s. So now that I've introduced her, we will get started with her story. But our story doesn't start with her. It actually starts with her brother, Edwin. In 1892, Edwin was in Colorado, and he had been sent to Colorado because he had tuberculosis. And tuberculosis, one of the cures that was common at the time was uh, like good, crisp, clean air, uh, lush waters. So they sent him to Colorado Springs, Colorado for a couple of months. And surprisingly, that did not help his tuberculosis at all. He was diminishing in health. So in March 1892, he came home. Uh, he was not the only member of his family to contract tuberculosis at the time in New England in the late 18th and early 19th century. Tuberculosis ran rapid in New England, and it affected many families where it would just plow through the entire family. So the situation that we're about to hear about is not an uncommon one at all. It is only the fate that befell poor Mercy. That's the uncommon part. So uh, the father of the family, George Brown, he sees that his son is diminishing and very slowly and painfully dying. And once George would eventually pass away, this would have been the fourth victim in his family to fall to tuberculosis. Uh, in 1883, his wife, Mary Brown, and his oldest daughter, Mary Olive, had both passed away from the disease. In 1892 was when Mercy died, and she was 19. So 
The other thing to keep in mind about this time is that the Salem witch trials, which are way more removed for us than they would have been, the Salem witch trials were still very prevalent and Exeter must have been full of superstition because one of the theories that ended up leading to our story with Mercy was there was not only the tales of the Salem witch trials, which had been expanded and someone taken out of proportion, but there were also numerous legends and tales of vampires that had gripped this New England town. So the doctors and medical personnel of the town couldn't make sense of what tuberculosis was at the time they called it consumption. So father who was exasperated and at the end of his rope turned to his neighbors and his friends and they turned to superstition. <coughs> The idea was that because the disease seemed to be centered in the Brown family, that there were members from beyond the grave who were trapped in between heaven and hell, or what would be called purgatory. There were souls trapped in purgatory that were sucking the life force out of the existing family members and taking it for their own as a way for them to come back from the dead. And I wish I was making this up. So... Their thoughts were to exhume all three bodies and look to see whose bodies looked the most fresh and undead. Dad at the time said, absolutely not. This is ridiculous. But as, as the son Edwin's condition got worse, he finally agreed to it begrudgingly. So on March 17th, 1892, the townspeople exhumed the bodies, bodies of the mother, and the oldest daughter, Mary Olive, when they dug them up and exhumed them, they found that there were bones. So they were considered cleared because their bodies had decomposed properly and they were fine. However, when they dug up Mercy's body, it is noted that her body was found on its side, her face appeared flushed, and there was blood in her heart and in her veins. Now, the only voice of reason is the doctor, Dr. Harold Metcalf, and he tried to be the voice of reason, saying that that's ridiculous. You know, of course, her body would still have blood in her veins and blood in her heart. She was only died and buried eight weeks ago. And unfortunately, because they couldn't dig the graves fast enough, her body had been stored kind of in a shed so she was frozen when they buried her because of the weather it was march march in new england is a pretty cold month but the doctor had the only logical reasoning but everybody else was completely convinced that mercy was convicted of being a vampire so they dug her body up they gathered firewood and they made a pyre they cut her heart and lungs out and they cremated them on the pyre. This is where her brother this is where her brother becomes relevant. Her brother was made to consume the ashes of his dead sister's heart mixed with water. And believe it or not, that didn't work. He still died of tuberculosis. What? I know, right? On May 2nd, 1892, unfortunately, he passed away. Mercy was buried under a, I believe she was she was buried in the original cemetery they found her in, which was Chestnut Hill Cemetery, but she was buried without a heart because, as we know, her brother consumed his, her heart. So today, 
Mercy Brown's grave draws a lot of attention in Chestnut Hill Cemetery. She is still there in Exeter, Rhode Island. Like I said, around this time of year, her story pops up and she becomes a folklore legend that people draw to because of its spookiness. But that is the story of the last vampire, quote, unquote. Well, anything Yay! you guys say or share in regards to that? Um, so I actually had to go down to Exeter a few weeks ago for work. And like uh -huh. you, you said, people still go and visit. Um, uh -huh. a lot of people actually bring gifts for her. Like we saw like yeah. little tickets, like little clips, of course, leaving coins is a big thing. Um, mm. but yeah, if people want to go see it, it's like down this really long wooded road <laughs> but yeah, you you can look up any you can find anything on the internet and, and you can find anything out about her and where she's buried but lauren yeah. is right i've actually been there as well and it was brief but uh yes her her grave is covered in gifts and little trinkets that people leave leave for her and her grave is relatively easy to find it's yes. like right off of the main road that you go on to get in which is cool yep so that's the story of mercy brown the last vampire and given that story it's kind of surprising because that's relatively like in the span of history 1892 that's relatively modern to hear mm -hmm. that story and and hear that it took place in 1892 i was kind of shocked before I had heard the more historical side of it with the dates and the years, I knew the legend part of it. I always thought it was much earlier. Like in which trial? Yeah, kind of around that time. I was kind of surprised to learn that it took place in the 1800s or late 1800s. Well, I mean, once, uh, not once, <laughs> Rhode Island was, um, a lot of the outer parts of Rhode Island were still being settled at that time. Uh, there was still a lot of open land. So this, huh. like, especially Exeter, was like a really a budding small village at that point. So it would have been similar to being in a place like Salem all the way back then because you're pretty far away from any actual major city at that point. So, hmm. you know, strange tales like this can definitely occur when there's a, you know, a town of less than 100 people in it at that point you know absolutely definitely and um you're right because it's so late other places especially up in boston and massachusetts were like what is happening in rhode island right now they, they were like what anyway? year is it huh? i said don't they say that anyway i mean boston is the superior city <laughs> Or so they think so, but telling myself that no. I will. That's a conversation for a different day. So yes, that's what I'm bringing to the table. So I brought the story of Mercy and the Last Vampire. Some say she still haunts the area. I'll let y'all be the judge. All right, so it's my turn. Uh, this is another well-known story. This time we're going up to Massachusetts. Let's see if you remember this rhyme from elementary school. Hopefully not if you're a millennial, because <laughs> it's kind of creepy. Um, but 
Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. So I'm talking about Lizzie Borden, uh, the quote-unquote axe murderer of Fall River, Massachusetts. So, on the morning of August 4th, 1892, Lizzie Borden's father and stepmother were found brutally murdered in their house in Fall River, Massachusetts. Their daughter, Lizzie, a 33-year-old spinster, uh, was arrested for the murder, tried, and acquitted. Spoiler alert, she gets away with it. So what's happening here? What we've got is a house um, at 92 2nd Street, Fall River. In the house, we have five, well, six people. We've got Andrew and Abby Borden. We have Andrew's daughters, uh, Abby's stepdaughters, Lizzie and Emma. And we also have an uncle of the Borden girls. Along with that, there is also Margaret Sullivan, the maid. At about 11.10 in the morning, uh, Lizzie discovered her father and stepmother brutally murdered in their home. A hatchet was found at the Borden residence. Uh, it didn't, it was a hatchet without a handle on it, but they assumed that was the murder weapon. It was pretty soon after that Lizzie was arrested and charged for the murders of her father and stepmother. Uh, some of the reasons why is because, well, she's the one that found the bodies. And that these sisters did not like their stepmother. They often argued with their father because their father was spending more money on the stepmother than he was on his daughters. So, uh, some of the theories on what happened is that uh, the father, Andrew, was taking a nap in one of the rooms. And Lizzie hacked him uh, about a couple dozen times, not 41. Um, but the theory of what happens next is that his stepmother comes in, runs away because she's seeing her stepdaughter hack her husband to death. And Lizzie goes upstairs running after her stepmother and then hacks her to death as well. No one's sure what happened. Uh, what we know for certain is that Lizzie found the body of her father, screamed for the maid, the maid came in and locked, and then Lizzie was like, oh, um, I think my stepmother just came in, let's go check on her. And then they went upstairs, and then lo and behold, stepmom's dead. The trial for Lizzie Borden lasted from June 5th to June 20th, 1893, and Lizzie was acquitted. Uh, she was uh, a secretary for the Young People's Society for Christian Endeavor and active in the Fruit and Flower Mission. It was pretty active overall in her church. 
So the jury full of Christian men uh, quickly acquitted her. They said, no, she couldn't have done this. Uh, and they never really opened the case back up after that. They just kind of assumed, well, whoever it is got away with it. And Lizzie Borden continued to live her life in Fall River. Uh, shortly after her parents' death, herself and her sister Emma actually bought a house with their father's money. So they just continued to live on uh, with the the um the rumors of her killing her parents still basically absorbing her entire life uh but yeah who knows uh in my humble opinion this is not anything but my brain she definitely did it uh they say she couldn't have done it because her clothes weren't covered in blood but i mean come on I know it was the 1890s, but she could have changed pretty easily. Today, you can still go and visit the Lizzie Borden house. You can, if you really want to, you can stay over there. It's said to be haunted by both Borden parents and Lizzie herself. They actually have the skulls on display in one of the rooms. The skulls of Andrew and Abby. Um... And if you stay the night and don't freak out, they give you a free t-shirt. I personally haven't gone there, but I really want to. But if anyone has, send me pictures of the skulls. That's like the creepiest part. So yeah, that's the story of Lizzie Borden. Unfortunately, it's not as long as people may think it is. Because really, uh, two people died and the daughter got blamed. She got acquitted and lived happily ever after. Which is always fun. It's interesting to know because 1892 is the same year for Mercy. So that's what was going on in New England in 1892. What was in the water? <laughs> conspiracy theory. They knew each other. Right. Mercy Brown helped. <laughs> conspiracy theory. Mercy Brown killed the Bordens. Well, well, well. Uh, that's very fitting because... Mine takes place right at the end of the 1800s as well. Oh, <gasps> shocker. Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. Everything's connected. Are we People ready to hear a good old tale of demons, devils, and werewolves? I'm always, always ready for that. Okay, so we start our little tale off in yet another small town that is emerging in Rhode Island. It's called One Socket. At this point, Woonsocket wasn't even an actual village. Um, it was just verging on a uh, village at this point because it was still under the control of Cumberland. But it was actually verging on being a town because a bunch of French Canadians kept moving in because they had came from uh, Quebec all the, down, all the way down to, for some reason, settling down in Woonsocket. Um <laughs> I don't know who originally decided that that was going to be French-Canadian territory, but that's the town that everyone wanted to move to. Uh, the, problem being, the problem being was that a lot of these French-Canadians were sad because when they moved here, they didn't realize that a lot of people down here were not Catholics and there was no church for them 
Meaning, if they wanted to go to a service, if they wanted to have a funeral, if they wanted to have a baptism, they needed to hike from here all the way to Providence. So they had to go from one socket all the way to Providence, not using a car, but maybe, you know, a little horse and a carriage. It's going to take a long while just to get to church. And being Rhode Islanders at that point, they don't like traveling more than five minutes. So they decide, hey, we need to beg the diocese to get a new priest in here. So they petition the diocese and the diocese says, eh, well, let's let's get a priest on it. Uh, a young priest comes down, I believe, way of Montreal, um, all the way down to the city, and says, okay, well, I'm here. Problem being, we don't have a church. Uh, the people love him so much that they says, okay, you know what? We're going to build you a church. And the most of the town actually starts pitching in and building this church. Problem being... Building a church by hand is very tough, and a lot of these people were very poor and did not have, you know, ox or horses or anything in order to be moving things around. So it was all by hand. So the priest, after a couple months of hard labor, just uh, lays down in bed one night and starts praying to the Mother Mary, saying, please, please, send me something that can help us build this church. And he receives a vision in his dreams of the, uh, the Virgin Mary saying, I will send you a horse, but on one condition, you will never remove its bridle. Cause if you remove its bridle, bad things will happen. And without hesitation, priest says yes. And at that moment he wakes up, he goes outside and lo and behold, there is a pitch black horse waiting outside with red eyes just staring at him. Uh, he walks up to the horse and undoes the uh, tether, uh, <laughs> wrapping it to his house. And he proceeds to call it Old Nick. He brings the horse over to the construction site. And for the next couple months, he uses said horse as a bull, almost, to carry rocks up from the riverside all the way to the construction site. And this horse has no need of food, sleep, rest. It's a very odd horse, and it unsettles a lot of the people working at the site, so much so that some of them leave because they are too scared of it. Over the months that he uses the horse in order to lift rocks from the riverside all the way back up to the construction site, the priest starts feeling unwell, and it, it kind of culminates in him getting very sick. Um, he has terrible dreams of a beast saying that it'll drag him down to hell if it doesn't let him go. It's really a terrible thing, and he falls pretty ill he petitions one of the uh, local farmers that he will now be in charge of the horse because the priest can't make it to the construction site that day he says to the farmer do not remove the bridle that is my only request of you the farmer says yes that's totally fine lo and behold 
they go down to the construction site and uh, the farmer gets a little bit, you know, tired. So he decides to go walk with old Nick down to the river to get a nice drink of water. And he thinks that he knows more about horses than the priest does. And he can see that old Nick seems a bit thirsty. So he decides, ah, you know what? I'm going to take the bridle off so this poor horse can get a drink. I've never seen this horse even drink. So he takes the bridle off, and at that moment, the horse neighs, rears up, and kicks the uh, farmer down and jumps across the river to the other side, landing with a powerful thud on a rock, which splits it open, and the horse jumps down into the newly created chasm. The priest, hearing of this, uh, not even an hour later, even though he is terribly ill, gets up and decides to walk down, but is obviously too late. The horse had already escaped back to hell, and with its escape, created what is known as the Devil's Hole, a pseudo-pit to hell located right by the riverside of the Blackstone River. Now, this hole had created a lot of paranormal phenomena for the months laying ahead. Um, there's many different little talkings about uh, wagons where you'd have uh, local merchants coming down the road near the Blackstone, and any time you pass near that hole, one of the wheels pops off your wagon, and you have to try to mend the wagon. And then comes the interesting part of the Lugaru. Uh, it is a French tale of werewolves. Um, specifically, the way that uh, the stories that I have read, including uh, Emmy Riley McGreen's Rhode Island Legends Haunting Hollows and Monster Lairs, and Essie Slosher's Spooky New England Tales of Hauntings, Strange Happenings, and Other Local Lore, the way that they put it was that if a sinner would pass by this hole, the, the demonic essence within the hole would somehow turn them into werewolves. But these werewolves are not like the werewolves that we know in average American lore. They're not something you can kill with a silver bullet, but they are just demons made of sin, pretty much. They could only be cured with uh, going to church and, uh, for some reason, bloodletting. It was a very interesting thing that I had found in one of those, uh, one of those stories. Very interesting that you have to let, let some blood from a wolf to allow it to become human again. Um, but yes, so this was this devil's hole. Uh, it, it had created all of these natural phenomena for, you know, a lot of years because the priest that had saw that happen became almost disillusioned with the fact that God would allow this to happen. So then uh, a new priest had come in not too long afterwards because the townsfolk were kind of upset that their priest just sat by as this happened. Um, and he was informed by the Vatican that he needs to go down and settle this affair. So he constructs a cross made out of oak and grabs some patrons from his 
church and marches down to this hole and plants the cross in front of the hole, sealing away the pit uh, forevermore and apparently uh, banishing the this pit to hell. Um, I've looked a couple times down by the Blackstone River to see if I could ever find this portal to hell or any remnants of a cross down by the river. Um, so far, nothing, but I mean, who knows? It still could be out there. Um, of course, this could definitely just be some, you know, wild tale you tell your children to make sure that they know to keep keep the Lord's name in right and, you know, not, not you know, go and be sinners or else you're going to be turned to French werewolves. I think it's... um. Even if it's just one of those fun little things, I think it's a fun little part of Rhode Island history, and you know, because all this like native little lore, it uh, it adds to the 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 culture of the area. Um, so what do you what do you all think of that? Um, first of all, road trip. <laughs> um, though I find the bloodletting interesting because that was a like legit form of healing mm-hmm. at, you know I don't know if it still was at that point maybe but they, like you said with um with the vampires like some parts were just so not backwards but they were still just little villages that they probably genuinely thought that that was gonna help a demonic French werewolf that's hiding in a <laughs> hell portal in Rude Socket. Um, but uh, I love that story. Mm, it's a good one. So weird. So weird. I've actually heard I've actually heard you tell that story more mm. than once, and I always I always enjoyed that story. I don't know what that says about me. But it's a good, it's a good I, story. It's a good yeah, story. It's a good story. <laughs> we have vampires and werewolves. What is this Twilight? Uh, yeah. Oh boy! With an axe. Get that back. <laughs> uh, I think uh, we should go ahead and finish off with a uh, David story. Let's hear it. All right. So we're. I feel like I'm breaking tradition here, but I'm breaking tradition. We're moving away from Rhode Island and going to Maine. <gasps> Maine. We're going to Maine because there's a really cool. Uh, there's a really cool creature up there called Poco, and he's the Chain Island Snake. Mm-hmm. Now, Poco, um, Poco span, um, the first written account of Poco from Europeans is 1882, but the legend of Poco spans back to, um, down Guanquin time period. So, the story goes that there was a so there's a de- uh, there was a disagreement between the Algonquin uh, shaman and a Micmac chieftain, um, and they decided to settle it in all good fashion with a mythical duel. So the shaman named Neptune um, turned into a giant snail, while the Micmac chief turned into a giant snake. The loser had to stay in that form forever, and they would be. Uh, chained to that uh to that lake so the shaman won and he ended up tying the snake to the tree uh plot twist the chief got free 
Um, so now he lives in that area. He's been called the protector of that area. Um, and there's very, been very few accounts. The only real written account is in 1887 when a gentleman named Sewell, uh, 1882, my apologies, uh, Sewell Quimby, uh, while outside his sawmill, saw Slytherin paths. Now, these paths were three, uh, three to four feet wide and three feet deep. The reason why this is important is because Poco, when he leaves his trail, it's that deep and that wide. And the sawmill is in the um, Chain Lakes uh, region. So the immediate thought was Poco is out and about. So, um, some details about Poco. He's 30 to 60 feet long and leaves behind a three to, uh, three to four foot deep uh, path behind him wherever he goes across. Um, and there have been some crypto people who have tried to piece it together. Um, so he has the body of a snake, but he moves like an inchworm when he's on the ground. And he has fins, is how he's described. But what's get, what gets interesting more is there are some people who believe it was an animal of that area. Because Titan Boas, which were the giant prehistoric snakes from South America, um, South America, so they could have come up this way if the conditions were right. This was the last one. Um, and there's no scientific, but there's no scientific data because people think that it went extinct out. Um, and there's some who think it's like Nessie, um, uh, or Champ. So, that's, uh, my fun thing. It's not, uh, not exactly as cool as werewolves or <laughs> some other local lores or vampires, but it's a cool snake. How can you go wrong with that? Yeah, cool water snake. I had never Go heard that. I enjoyed that. Yeah. I Well, what's interesting is, like, imagine if, you know, this kind of goes back to some of the things that, you know, we've talked about a little bit in the past is, like, these things could have been here and it could have been real, but, you know, time marches on, can, the environment changes, and it could have disappeared. You know, I mean, a lot of our things were, were very evil and will hurt you. This guy just sounds like a friend. I mean, I, I'd I'd like to just sit down with uh, uh po- was it Poco? Poco. Yeah, I'd like to just sit down with Poco and have a nice conversation. I mean, he's the defender of a lake. I mean, he's he's not bothering no one. Just let he's, him do his business. He's harmless. Um, there's some people you know who thinks he's Plesiosaurus. That'd be cool if he was. You know, hanging out with the Plesiosaur. Yeah, you uh, know, just let him do his business. Yeah, that's not bothering that's, no one. And normally, people like aren't bothered by him. Like people. Have, you know, it's like Nessie and Champ. Um, they just go out looking for him, and they find him, they find him, and people are looking for pictures for him. So, I mean, that's pretty noble defending a lake. Like Derek said, you know, some of our things are a little more dark, or you know, they want to hurt you. Whereas this dude has a pretty noble, uh, noble job, noble prospect. Yeah. Just swimming around doing his uh, doing his snake thing. Just hanging out. And I'm happy for him. I wish I, I wish I was living that life, that Poco life. Oh, I wish that were me. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. We hope that it filled your need for spooky lore around this time of year. Please make sure to follow us on Twitter at Operation Hist. You can reach out to us on our Facebook page at Operation History. At you can reach out to us on our Facebook page, which is Operation History slash Facebook. Or you could reach out to us at our Gmail, which is Operation History Podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the show. If you have any questions about any of the topics we've talked about in this episode or our previous episode, or you want to suggest topics of your own, you can reach us there. If you haven't listened to our previous month's episode, go ahead and check it out. In that episode, we talked about the 400-year anniversary of the Pilgrims down in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And that actually is going to bridge the gap into our next month's episode, where we will be discussing the first New England Thanksgiving with the Pilgrims. So we're going to talk about the... Right? There we go. We got Lauren in the background for your shout-out. Uh, Lauren's going to pick up where she left off because if you listen to that episode, we kind of stopped once we hit uh, the Thanksgiving time period. And Lauren is going to pick up November's episode with the legends, lore, and facts of the first Thanksgiving here in America. Well, that'll do it for this episode. I am Maria. I'm Lauren. Derek. David. Thank you so much for joining us and happy Halloween, happy holidays, stay safe, and thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye. This has been Operation Spooky. history has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for Operation History. Sorry, I was reading a very funny tweet. Okay, so. Am I reading it? I'm going to do it, and I'm going to end up reading what I wrote, because that's what I got. <laughs> this is awesome. This is Don't so on so so, to all of this. This is so on track for our entire friend group. This is so um, peak. You just... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, Lauren, am I reading it or are you reading it? <laughs> Someone fucking read it already. I'll read it. Hold on. I need to like center myself. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs>